2: i i was
3: building a poop path for my dogs before we <laughs> yeah like because they won't go poop in the snow because they're too short for the, the snow <laughs> so it's already up to their asshole but they won't just like let it go, you have to squat like a dog, I guess. Oh, so you hard. were
0: shoveling snow just for your dogs to go. Pooping. Yeah,
3: I made like a little path out into the yard and then a big square. Yeah. That they could poop and pee in that they'd feel good about banjo
0: walked outside about five feet and peed and pooped right on my patio. And the uh <laughs> because I mean, he couldn't tell it was a patio, it's covered. Yeah, in snow. of course. And then the yorkies well, Bruno took one step outside immediately did a 180 and walked right back in
3: yeah <laughs> he's like that's how they, they were being so i was hoping the poop path would work they, so far they've
0: peed don't eat that
1: yellow snow no. no well this is this has been uh this has been the first year that max has actually played in the snow he doesn't oh. he, he's not he's not a he's not a fan of uh precipitation uh in all forms and but this has been the first one where he's romped around although we can't tell if he's romping for fun or if it's like, oh, it's cold here. Whoop. Oh, no, it's cold here, too. Oh, it's cold here, too.
0: <laughs> it's just confused. Just, <laughs> it's
1: cold everywhere. What is happening? <laughs> Speaking
0: of yellow snow, I watched the Jackass movie a couple of days ago. <laughs> the uh, the original, the first one from like 2002 yeah. or something. Yeah. I watched that yeah. one too long ago. Man, it's hilarious
1: cat has, <laughs> the cat has adamantly so refused funny. to watch those that's wow. um, <laughs> so
3: weird that's how my wife is too i watched i watched all of them a little while back and uh jennifer was not having them
0: yeah bunny watched the first one with me i think she'll watch the other one she she you know i don't think she ever watched the show like i did but she watched it sporadically I was obsessed with it I loved that show in high school and stuff Uh, and watching it in the theater the first movie was one of the funnest like I've never heard an audience laugh that much throughout a movie except in maybe like Borat those might be like the two best audience reaction movies I've ever been to but nice yeah uh, it I mean I would say it holds up but I guess it probably doesn't if like if I can't imagine somebody watching it now having no concept of what jackass is you know and yeah, watching yeah. it and and but it, you know I've got well, that definitely a proud of its time yeah 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 I mean it the the finale of the movie is Ryan Dunn putting a toy car up his ass and getting an x-rayed so that is like the big that's the big finale
2: <laughs>
3: anyway you guys want a podcast speaking of jackasses these freaking kids right
0: <laughs> they are a bunch of jackasses. kids kids 42 kids. One island. 42 kids. In a world. In a in a country. In a country. <laughs> what are we doing, Todd? I don't, I don't, know. Know. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. I was going to let him go.
3: Well, hello <laughs> and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Hoard.
0: And I'm Justin Bishop. And I'm at...
3: Oh, fuck it up. <laughs> Todd only goes by his
0: his handles
3: also. That's a, yeah, that's he is true.
1: I only respond to my full internet handles.
0: Todd has had his name legally changed with an at sign at the beginning of it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I'm Todd A. Davis. Uh at the dawn of the millennium, the nation collapsed at 15% unemployment. 10 million were out of work. 800,000 students boycotted the schools. The adults lost confidence and fearing the youth eventually passed the Millennium Educational Reform Act, also known as the first cinema shock roulette episode. Wow.
0: He went for it. I I really (laughs) wish, I really wish you would have done that in completely in Japanese. <laughs> that would have been awesome. I will say your
3: delivery was better than when you uh, gave us that joke in the uh, in the pre-production.
1: Uh, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, he did the he did the movie guy, the Mister Movie Phone voice.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so, well. that's the level of professionalism I try to bring to the show, guys.
0: <laughs> yeah. So this is a uh, this is the first in what will be kind of a recurring feature here on Cinema Shock, Cinema Shock Roulette. These are one-off episodes uh, that are kind of standalone. Uh, there are about films that we, we kind of explained this last week, but if you haven't listened to that, because maybe you haven't seen the Matrix Resurrections, uh, these are kind of episodes that we're going to be inserting in between longer series because they're movies that we want to talk about, but we not might not be able to fit them into a series or or you know anything like that. But we still think they're important to talk about. They're important parts of the history of cult cinema. So we don't want to just skip over them. I mean, yeah, we could do a whole uh, Kenji Fu- uh, Fukasaku series, but it would last f- five years, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're not going to do that. So, for the first episode in this Cinema Shock Roulette series, we're discussing a cult film from the year 2000 that's often regarded as one of the best films by its prolific director. It's been called one of the best films of the 2000s, and it's one that. Quentin Tarantino, uh, back in 2009, called his favorite film of the past two decades. He was interviewed around the time of *Inglorious Bastards*, and, and they were asking about his favorite movies that had come out since uh, since his debut, since *Reservoir Dogs* in 1992. And he named this film the the number one movie of all the movies released since 1992 so the condemned
1: the condemned starring stone cold steve austin <laughs> yes
0: uh, it's basically the same movie but it, he, this movie I mean, would have been amped up with stone cold steve austin I gotta say. <laughs> tarantino loved this movie so much in fact that he cast one of his actors in an instrumental role in his own kill bill uh which we talked about about one year ago this week i think actually somewhere around then yeah uh this is a film that was a cultural phenomenon uh one that proved to be influential not only in its native japan but internationally inspiring everything from books to video games and we are of course talking about kenji fukusaku's battle the hunger
1: games (laughs) sorry
0: he's got you i can tell now he's got a
3: list of all of these movies (laughs) (laughs) he's working off of i know
0: he does
1: (laughs) All right, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm an asshole. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: So, Battle Royale is based on a novel of the same name written by an author named uh, Koshun Takami. And that novel, which was Takami's first, was originally completed in 1996, although it wasn't actually published until 1999. Uh, Takami claims to have been inspired by a dream. We, I feel like we hear this a lot on the show. Like, people be, <laughs> feel, we talked about that on um, last episode on Resurrections, Lana Wachowski having the idea for that while she was like trying it's to true. fall asleep. i'm pretty sure
3: like paul mccartney wrote hey jude based off a dream he had yeah and drugs (laughs) 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 yeah but but yeah but yeah so dream the melody or something
0: this is a this is actually very similar to uh to lana wachowski because she was like trying to fall asleep and couldn't sleep and this idea came to her and the same thing kind of happened to takami he he says that he was in this kind of half awake state You, you know that state that you're in where you you start dreaming, but you're also still awake and you, you're not really sure
1: where you're Now at. you're just <laughs> quoting the matrix, Justin, come on.
0: <laughs> but he's laying on his futon and he's in this kind of half awake, half asleep state. And he gets this mental image of a teacher standing in front of a class announcing, today, I'm going to have you kill each other. And this idea like pops into his head. So Ooh. he starts workshopping ideas based on this singular image. Uh, he, he, said he said he is not the
3: it. image of the teacher- Grinning as he spoke was so vivid yeah. to him that he was laughing, but he was also very terrified. Yeah, oh, terrified geez. of his own brain.
0: Uh. So he starts discussing it with some friends and workshopping and building a story around this idea. He adds in the social and political aspects of the story. Uh, he was actually influenced in a large part by Japanese student uprisings against police brutality in the late 60s, which is when he was growing up, something that he saw firsthand. And he, of course, based a lot of the book's depiction of totalitarian government on uh, his favorite Stephen King book, The Long Walk, which if you haven't seen is about a what is... The, the term didn't exist then, but what is essentially a reality TV series about these people that are on this road, a long walk. It's being televised for the entertainment of the masses, uh, but there's all sorts of instruments of death along the way, let's say. Oh, wow. Really yeah. good. There's a novel, or one of the, I think
3: one of the publishings of the novel, there's an interview with uh, Takami at the end of it that he references... The Long Walk and uh, Robert Parker, uh, who did the Spencer series. I'm not super familiar with that, but he listed those as influences. Kawada's final line in the book is, that's what I want. Um, Apparently, that's like ripped straight from Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Um, And uh, the children's hometown in the book is called Shiroiwa, which is a direct translation is Castle Rock.
0: And, oh uh, wow yeah <laughs> that's pretty cool uh, and, and yeah, yes so-
3: let's get to the straight let's be straightforward for a second too and get to the question that i know is on everybody's mind yes takami is a pro wrestling fan and that is how he came up with the name battle royale <laughs> yeah of course, of nice. course. <laughs> and, uh, so <laughs> for those that don't know a battle royale and wrestling is where a bunch of people are in the ring and you throw each other over the top rope in fact as this episode airs, on January 29th, the Royal Rumble is happening, which is perhaps the most famous of the Battle Royales in pro wrestling. Yeah, there was an article with, uh, uh, with him in Polygon, and it said what really interested him about this concept was the social aspect of the Battle Royale, uh, the way former enemies could come together to overcome a superior opponent, and that friends and partners would be forced to betray each other for their own glory. This more than anything else is what makes this book so horrifying. The fact that the rules necessitated betraying someone important to you in order to ensure your own survival. He said he actually originally intended that the book might be a little bit lighthearted and, <laughs> uh, and fun. But uh, since he was a, a pro wrestling fan, he also wanted to have the air of sportsmanship uh, surrounding the whole affair. And uh, so, but he kept coming back to this element of betrayal and how uh, there is, in his words, a, a huge di- difference between being double-crossed by your friend and pinned for the enjoyment of a crowd, being double-crossed by your friend and shot dead. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, kind of his
0: his thought process, I guess. So, it, it, if you were playing uh, Cinema Shock Bingo and were wondering if we were going to have a wrestling reference on this one, uh, <laughs> there's, there you go. I, I well, was well, Todd how jumped in with Stone Cold right at the beginning. So, how, yeah, I, mean, I was wondering how long into the episode we were going to get before Gary mentioned the Royal Rumble, and it turns out about five minutes. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you, you mentioned Robert Parker. He he wrote those Spencer novels. Uh, you, you might not be familiar with the novels, Gary but he did uh, th- th- there was a TV show based on it called Spencer for Hire that was pretty popular back in the oh, 80s yeah. which starred Robert Um Yurich and his partner played by uh, a gentleman named Avery Brooks that Todd might be familiar with. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, he also wrote Benjamin
1: all- Cisco from Deep Space 9 <laughs> for the uh,
0: I think he got his own I think he got his own spin-off uh for a little while on that or or something along those lines his I character. Yeah. yeah anyway i don't i've never read any of the books so i'm not sure where how they how they relate to battle royale They doesn't seem
3: like uh, he well i think those were like his favorite things and so he had like a well I, I forget now there's stuff about it in the interview but something about that character he really liked and had that was like his initial idea for a book that he was gonna write and it turned into this whole other thing
0: gotcha gotcha well uh he he Ends up writing the book. Again, it was about 1996 when he wrote it. And it got entered into the 1997 Japan Horror Fiction Awards, but was eventually rejected during the final round of the awards due to its controversial subject matter, which resulted in no winner at the awards that year. Uh, because so all three members of the final round selection committee, they're trying to decide between the last the final books. Uh, decide on a winner and all three of the members of like the, the jury or whatever, they agreed that it was actually the best work of the year, but declined to give it an award due to its content. So they're like, this is the best, but we can't give this an award because of what it bullshit. It's really weird. Right. So they, but the thing is they didn't give the award to anyone else. They didn't think any other book deserved the award over it. Yeah. Well, so I was,
3: I was looking more into this when I, when I saw this and, and so the real problem seems to be is that, like, right before this, there was a, an issue where a 14-year-old student in Japan... I mean, this is mur- more than an issue.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. this, is, <laughs> well, this is a major crime. Yeah, well, so uh, <laughs> a major
3: crime. Uh, a 14-year-old student murdered one of their peers and left the victim's severed head behind in the classroom for the, uh, for the other students to find uh, then also admitted to having beaten the schoolgirl to death and attacking another one. And so people were kind of up in arms. The similarities were a little too much. And so they disqualified battle royale. Basically. This really yeah. has something
1: for every member of the family to enjoy.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. But this it, was it, real life. And so they were like, uh, too soon. Yeah. Too yeah, too soon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand We'll probably get into it later.
1: But I mean, it's been tied to a bunch of different like true life crime events.
0: Yeah, it has. Yeah, It has. And and of course, as we know, uh, we've talked about this on the show before. When a work gets this type of reputation, especially before its release, uh, whether through controversy or censorship or whatever, uh, it makes people just want to see it that much more. Uh, So when Battle Royale was published in April of 1999, it became an immediate hit. It uh, sold more than 1 million copies before being translated into nearly a dozen languages. And then only a year after its release, the novel was adapted into a manga that was also written by Takami. And and he actually, from what, what I understand from interviews with him, he actually seems to prefer the manga to the novel because he was able to tweak some of the characters in ways that he didn't think worked completely before. And the manga was... Uh, incredibly popular as well even possibly even more popular than the novel and then of course after the manga we got a feature film directed by Kenji Fukusaku and written by his son Kenta Fukusaku oddly he has not done anything since there I know isn't that strange yeah yeah the He son, not the son the writer the, the novel oh, the writer oh. yeah because this really this, this book was huge and he hasn't really done anything else wow. the last thing I can find from him is
3: him like posting something about how a publisher had said he wasn't going to write anything any anymore. And he was like, that's not true. I never said that. And supposedly was working on something, but just never. It's been 22 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Kenji Fukusaku. So Fukusaku was born in Mito, which is in the Northwestern region of Japan in 1930. Uh, So when he was about 15 years old, his class was drafted uh, and he worked as a munitions worker during World War II. He worked in a munitions factory. Uh, His entire class worked in a munitions factory during the war. And then after the war, he immersed himself in film, watching a lot of films that were made outside of Japan. Uh, He got really into that stuff. And eventually he would study cinema at Nihon University. So after graduating in 1954, uh, he became an assistant re- director at the famed Toei Studios. We talked about that actually back in our Kill Bill series. Uh, th- I want to say that was during the uh, Lady Snowblood episode, if I remember correctly. I think right? that you're
3: right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He made but his the directorial- reason I say that is because uh, uh, F- F- Fuka, Saku, his wife and uh, mother of his, his baby mama, um, is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sane Nakahara, who is the bad lady in Lady Snowblood. She's the female member of the gang, okay. uh, just for and, a callback.
0: Well, and, and Miko Kaji, who you know, plays Lady Snowblood herself, actually appeared in some of his films back in the 70s as well. He made his directorial debut in 1961 with two featurettes, featurettes being Not quite feature length, but not quite short length. They're about 50 some odd minutes a a piece. Uh, He made two of them called Drifting Detective Tragedy in the Red Valley. And then its sequel came out that same year, later that same year, called Drifting Detective Black Wine in the Harbor, which is a fucking cool name. Uh, Both of those starred Sonny Chiba
3: yeah apparently like in in back in the day when you sign on with like a studio like that like toy like they'll they'll give you like these little short featurette style movies to like test your chops or get you used to directing or something like that and uh see what you're made of yeah see what you're made of and so like sonny chiba who we you know obviously we talked about him a lot with the kill bill thing um he was discovered by Toei studios in italic contest in 1959 and so He was uh, still
0: very early in his career at this time.
3: Though. Yeah, these two would end up being linked for quite a while. Fukusaku gives Chiba his first lead roles. Uh, they end up being friends forever. Chiba is regularly in his movies, uh, like the ones you mentioned. And then uh, there's these this funky hat series he does. He's in Battles Without Honor and Humanity 2, Hiroshima Deathmatch, Virus, is, Samurai the, Reincarnation.
0: That's the same one that Miko Okaji is in, is the, the second one
3: oh yeah okay so then no. yeah so yeah basically fukusaku is scorsese to chivas de niro but <laughs> but Chivas not battle royale so more on that some other
0: time i guess yeah yeah <laughs> we'll do we'll do the street fighter one day that'll that that's a good nice. that's a good cinema shock roulette episode uh, <laughs> we'll, street fighter sister street fighter we'll do a little double feature or something but Sweet. so uh, Fukusaku spends the next two decades making his name as a director of Yakuza films, although he did uh, he did also direct the 1968 Japanese-American sci-fi co-production, The Green Slime. So he, he veered a little bit into the horror sci-fi stuff, but mostly Yakuza films. Uh, in 1970, he was recruited to direct the Japanese scenes of another U.S.-Japan production, Tora, 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 after Akira Kurosawa pulled out of the project. That was a very famous movie about Pearl Harbor. It came out in 1970 so it it was showing basically pearl harbor from both the american and japanese vantage points and they had an american director doing the american stuff and in this case fukusaku doing the japanese side of things so at this point in his career fukusaku was already a well-respected director in japan uh, even having his film under the flag of the rising sun selected as japan's entry for best foreign language film for the 1972 academy awards cool and it was that next year, though, 1973, that saw Fukusaku releasing one of his most influential movies, uh, one that Gary Gary mentioned it briefly there. But it was it was the groundbreaking Yakuza film, Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Uh, otherwise, this, this series is also known as the Yakuza Papers, depending on kind of where where you look. The Yakuza films have been around for a long time and the the genre had mostly up to now been tales of chivalry set in the pre-war period uh before world war ii but fukusaku took this more kind of ultra violent documentary style approach to these films he he was very much inspired by the french new wave if you watch the battles without honor and humanity film there's a lot of handheld camera work uh there's even like you know freeze frames as you know when someone dies and they'll the The name flashes on the screen. So and so died this day. Very documentary like, which is something we actually see pop up in in Battle Royale later. Uh, and he sets the film in a very chaotic post war Hiroshima. It's a very it's an incredible film. Uh, I actually watched the first three Battles Without Honor and Humanity films this week, uh, including the one with Sonny Chiba, which is has been my favorite of the bunch so far because Sonny Chiba is incredible in that movie he plays kind of a villain in it but the battles without honor and humanity is the best thing i could describe it as is that it's like the japanese godfather oh, uh, nice. it's, it's basically about these all these yakuza families in japan and it takes place over the course of many many years and it's they're a little tough to follow at times because over the course of the five films in the original series uh because they, they brought the series back later on uh in the i want to say in the 90s but in those early films, they introduce you. You follow probably a hundred different characters over the course of five films. So they can get Jeez. a little hard to follow at times, but it just creates this tapestry of this epic story about the Japanese underworld, essentially the crime world. And uh, they're, they're definitely worth watching. If you have a chance, they're pretty easy to find streaming. They, they were really hard to find for years and years. uh, And now arrow video put them out They're on the arrow streaming service. They, they were on Shudder streaming service and they might still be on there. I'm not sure. Uh, but I watched them on arrow this week and yeah, they're definitely worth checking out if you're in, if you want to look further into his career. So this film, the, the first one comes out, it's a commercial and critical success. And it resulted in uh, eventually seven sequels by Fukusaku five in the initial series, plus three other movies based on the series that were directed by others. These all came out within the course of the initial five came out over the course of two years, five movies. Years. Yeah. <laughs> so they were, they, he was shooting them back to back to back and, and releasing them like that. Jeez. So yeah. So they, they were big hits and after directing several more Yakuza movies throughout the 1970s, uh, Fukusagu left the genre focusing instead on historical epics and science fiction films. He's, well respected in japan ends up
3: becoming like head of the director's guild of japan in like 96 and 97 he won the government's uh medal with the purple ribbon for accomplishments in film and uh but but after that period like you're talking about he it's kind of strange he ends up more as like a journeyman director he's just like doing a bunch of stuff
0: yeah i mean his filmography is all over the place. There's this big stretch of Yakuza movies. And then, yeah, there's a bunch of just like, I mean, the genres are all random, like all all over the map. And over the course of his career, he was credited as the director of 62 films, uh, sometimes directing as many as four or five features a year. Jeez. I mean, that's not unheard of in Japan as much as it is here, especially back in that time, like because uh, they, they had a similar a studio system that was not unlike what Hollywood had, you know, where directors mm. were signed a contract with a studio. And wow. so it was more like a job a lot of times, like, Hey, you're assigned to this and this and this, but even now Takashi uh, he, he came out with his 100th feature a couple of years ago, which is insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. It's, it's personal life is fine. I'm sure.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: sure, yeah. He's, he's good. <laughs> uh but battle royale would prove to be out of 60 plus features battle royale would prove to be his most controversial and possibly his most influential uh it would also end up being the last film that he would ever complete so fu- <laughs> fukusaku <laughs> has said that his decision to direct Battle Royale is a direct result of his time working in that munitions factory back in World War II. So he tells this story. He tells us a lot in interviews. In July of 1945, the munitions factory came under fire, gets bombed. Uh, The factory employed a lot of high school age students that had been drafted to work there during the war. And during the attack, the kids couldn't escape. So they dived under each other for cover. So if you're on the top of that Dog pile, You're kind of screwed. Uh, yeah. And a lot of them died and the surviving members of the class had to dispose of the corpses of their classmates. Jeez. These are 15, 15 year old kids. And it was then that he realized that the Japanese government had been lying about the war, about the reasons behind the war and their reasons for entering the war. And he kind of developed a hatred and distrust of adults in general, which is something that he never really, even as he became an adult even as he became an old, an old man, he never really lost that. The screenplay for the film, for Battle Royale, was actually written by his son, Kenta Fukasaku, which I think is pretty cool. I mean, you don't see a lot. His, his son, he was pretty, he was a little older when he had his son. I think he was in his mid-40s or so when his son was born, so a little older than most people are. Uh, but... Kenta was actually the first one that brought the book to his father's attention. He had actually seen a display for the novel in a, in a bookstore and bought it because the, the striking cover, uh, the covers like, it's like a black background and these big bold letters battle royale. If you watch the director's cut of this movie, the, the, the way the title looks on the screen. I know Todd yeah. watched the director's cut. That's yeah. how. That's the cover of the book, those big oh, okay. block letters. Cool. Uh, and then it had this tagline that said, 42 junior high school students annihilate them all. That was the tagline of the book. And he's like, okay, I got to check this out. <laughs> so he took the book, he buys the book, takes it home, but he didn't read it w- right away. He kind of you know, tossed it to the side. And then one day his father is visiting and he sees it lying on his kitchen counter and it caught his attention as well. So he shows interest in it, and his son says, hey, take it home, borrow it. He takes it home. He reads it immediately, loved it immediately, and then immediately started thinking about ideas to turn this into a movie. So about 6,000 actors ended up auditioning for the film (laughs) (laughs) for for these roles. Uh, The number was eventually narrowed down to about 800 potential cast members. And all of these, these 800 or so kids were subjected to a six-month training period under the direction of Fukusaku, uh, like physical training, to see who was up for it. And of that 800, 42 were ultimately cast as the junior high students in the film. Now I'm not going to go through all 42 of these uh, as we talk about the cast because <laughs> that would be boring. Plus, some of them don't last very long. In the I film. think we should pay
3: respects and yeah, just let <laughs> list, list off all, all of the kids right now. Hey, in
1: in order in order of which they died, go ahead, Justin.
0: <laughs> I'll just let somebody look. I'm sure there's a list out there on Wikipedia or something of them. So I'll, just, I'll let our listeners do a little bit of their own legwork on that one. But we will discuss some of the more like, notable roles in the film. Uh, starting with the lead role, uh, Shuya Na- uh, Nanahara is the, the main guy. Uh, he's played by Tatsuki Fujiwara. and This is one of H- Fujiwara's first roles. Uh, he'd later go on to be known for roles in the live-action adaptation of Death Note. Uh, he played Light in Death Note. If you've ever seen Death Note, the, either the American remake or the anime series, you'll know who Light is. He's a, one of the main characters of the story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he also played the villain in the popular live-action uh, *Rurouni Kenshin* films, which is another anime adaptation. The role of Noriko is played by Aki Meda. She uh, she was only fourteen years old when she made this. She was one of the few actors in the movie who was actually the age of the character that they were playing. But wow. she was she was one of the youngest. And uh, she later appeared in. Um, she was in some of those *Gamera* movies from uh, the '90s, actually before this, when she was a little bit younger. Uh, she was probably about 10 or 12 when she made those. Uh, but then she was later after, after this movie, she appeared in Godzilla Mothra and King Ghidorah giant monsters all out attack, which came out in 2001 and is arguably, in my opinion, one of the top five Godzilla movies.
1: Well, that the title of that just rolls right off the tongue.
0: Well, Godzilla GMK (laughs) is what is traditionally known as. Oh, okay. In the States. Yeah. But, uh, I think Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monster Island Attack is probably a more literal translation of the do you think, do Japanese you th- title.
1: Do you think they fit all of that on the ticket stub when you yeah. go into the theater?
0: <laughs> okay, uh, it's a great movie. Have you seen that one, Gary? You watched all these a while back, didn't you? I started down the path. I don't know that I've seen that one, honestly. It's I would I would recommend it. It's it's a super. If you if your favorite thing about the Godzilla movies is just monsters beating the shit out of each other. <laughs> uh, which? Why? What, what else would be your favorite thing about Godzilla movies? Of course, uh, then, then this one's pretty high up on the list of Godzilla movies. Nice. Interesting. Uh, an actor named Taro Yamamoto plays uh, Kawada, uh, so he is he's the one with the the, the uh, bandana, the, head, the headband. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Yamamoto at twenty five was one of the oldest actors in the film. Although, as I mentioned, very few of them were as young as the characters. But his character was actually supposed to be a little bit older. He was one of the two characters who was supposed to be older than the other kids anyway. Uh, And interestingly, I started looking into Yamamoto's life. And this guy's a very interesting dude. Uh, He actually left acting about a decade ago. uh, After the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in March of 2011, Uh, he became a protester in the anti-nuclear movement. And later, he, he resigned from his talent agency to focus fully on activism. He essentially retired from acting to focus on activism. And he has since devoted his life to politics. In 2019, he formed a new political party in Japan, a left-wing anti-establishment party called Riwa Shinsugumi. And he actually ran for governor of Tokyo in 2020 and came in third place. He got like over 10,000 votes, I think. So he's, And he's still very active as and, and very well-known in Japan as a oh, wow. as a kind of political activist
1: that's pretty cool
0: yeah really neat another of the older actors cast in this was uh Mensanobu ando he was also 25 or 26 depend i've read it both ways uh at the time of the film so he's 25 or 26 years old he's the other exchange student the one that doesn't have any lines in the whole movie that just shoot with the kind of crazy hair you know Yeah, yeah yeah uh, yeah. yeah uh and he's I, I love that guy in this movie. He's got a great screen presence. <laughs> he, he really does. He had started his career in a film called uh, Kids Return, which was direct, directed by Takeshi Kitano. Uh, we'll talk about him here in a minute. Uh, he later appeared in the first thing I, well, I guess probably I'd seen Battle Royale first, but another thing I'd seen him in was Takashi Miike's *Sukiyaki Western Django, which is this really fun English language, sp- Japanese spaghetti Western that Mike directed. Uh, we're gonna do a Takashi Mike series on this podcast one day. We absolutely have to. Obviously we can't talk about all 100 films, but uh, but I think we could over the course of maybe two or three series, hit some of the high notes of his career because he is a fascinating filmmaker and and honestly, oh, yeah. like I love his stuff a lot.
3: We could just do like 100 days of Miike or something and just do just back to back days of it. That'd be awesome.
0: Oh God. Whew.
3: Jeez. <laughs> but yeah. We all quit uh,
0: our jobs. Yeah. We'll yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly.
3: Uh if anybody wants to fund that, we'll start a Patreon for it. Yeah. Kiriyama, um the, the man with the unlimited Uzi. Uh yeah. let's <laughs> well, see. Yeah, oh. yeah, he like, like you said, he'd been an actor in a ton of different things, but apparently he petitioned for this role. Like he he really wanted this this part because uh uh by his reasoning quote the more people you kill the more important you are in this film
0: I mean yeah he's not, <laughs> he's not, he's not, not wrong, wrong. <laughs> you definitely last you get more screen time I guess
3: yeah it I mean kid to Fukusaku was actually talks in some of the documentary stuff about being pissed at his pops for uh right, right as filming began he came up to him and told him to rewrite this character because uh, he needed him to be more of a lead role. I guess he, because in the book, like he's, he's a student. He's not okay. like a rando put in there. And he, he like leads the gang, maybe one of the ones, maybe the gang he kills at the very beginning. But, uh you know, he flips a coin to decide to join the game at all or whatever. Like he's, he's kind of a psychopath and uh has no empathy or anything, but also doesn't care about playing this game either. But, I guess uh the director decided he wanted a lunatic running around with an Uzi. And so yeah, I mean, what, if, what if it could be rewritten? <laughs> he said uh his son said uh he he said, quote, it turns out I don't like the decent guys after all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we we mentioned Takeshi Kitano. He is uh this guy is easily one of the most famous and recognizable actors in the film. He uh, played the class's teacher, which is also named Kitano, uh, which I, I'm pretty sure, because the teacher is not named Katano in the book, and I'm pretty sure they named him that to try to persuade Takeshi into, <laughs> into being in this movie. Uh, he's also known in Japan as um, Beat Takeshi. That's kind of his TV personality name, except yeah. when he directs films. When, when he's on TV, it's what he does, but when he directs films, he directs it under his name, Takeshi Katano. Uh, And his recognizability was a big reason that he was cast in the movie. Uh, He is, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain, I guess, to American audiences, but he is sort of everywhere in Japan on TV. Uh, He is one of Japan's most successful celebrities. Uh, He's a TV presenter. He's a stand-up comedian. Uh, Like, he is very, very famous. And the producers of Battle Royale knew that his involvement would draw a larger audience to the film, And also, because he was a longtime game show host in Japan, that added kind of a sense of realism to the film's game show-like concept.
1: Oh, okay. And, of course,
0: naming him after his actual name went a long ways as well. But this would be the equivalent of, like, fuck, I don't know, Bob Barker. (laughs) Carson Daly. This would be like if Carson Daly... uh, (laughs) <laughs> was in this film in an american remake but you know i, I mean carson daly in the 90s i guess people, people don't watching... know this but
3: the voice is actually loosely based on battle
1: royale
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean oh, or shit. this is ryan seacrest uh this is the ryan seacrest of japan <laughs> ryan
1: seacrest going on the murderous rampage that we know is eventually going to happen oh anymore. it's right Why?
0: behind right behind those eyes yeah. it's just yeah. murder. <laughs> so, uh This was actually not the first time Takeshi Katana and and Fukusaka, they had wanted to work together for a long time, and they were actually originally supposed to work together back in the late 80s. Uh, There's a movie called Violent Cop that uh, Katana made in 1989. Uh, it was his directorial debut he's gone on to be a very well respected director uh he stars in this movie violent cop but uh, he, and he received a lot of critical acclaim and awards for all of his films i mean one japanese film critic called him the true successor to akira kurosawa which is saying something Some, high nice. um, yeah, praise yeah but violent cop was originally supposed to be directed by fukusaku uh, with takeshi in the lead role and the, the two of them you know one want, had wanted to work together ever, ever since i can't remember why Fukusaka didn't direct that. I think it was a scheduling thing, something simple like that. So, huh. so yeah, Takeshi ends up taking over as a director and making his directorial debut, and basically creating a whole second career as a director.
3: yeah it's weird to imagine him as a game show and a comedian or game show host and a comedian to me because he's like kind of this deadpan attitude in the movie but according to him that was the director's decision he said he he believes his role is to please the director and he was told to play this as your authentic self just in your (laughs) normal demeanor and so he's just kind of (laughs) casually like I don't know I guess that's that's how he is in real life
0: yeah, I mean, it, it's weird to me because I have, I've never seen any of his comedic stuff, but I've seen, uh, obviously, I, I think this is probably the first thing I saw him in. I've also seen Outrage, uh, which came out about 10 years ago or so. It's part of a series of Yakuza movies that he directed and stars in. I think there's probably two or three of them at this point. Uh, but I'd seen that, and, and that's another very serious, very violent film. Uh, and I'd seen his Zatoichi remake, where he plays Zatoichi the Blind Swordsman. And it's none of those at all hint that he's any kind of comedian. You know, uh, yeah. he was also in Gary. He was also in Johnny Mnemonic, by the way, small role in that. Oh, weird. Nice. Yeah. So you may remember you, you, if you go watch Johnny Mnemonic now, you will recognize him.
3: Yeah. He plays Dolph Lundgren.
0: He does. He's, in the, <laughs> he's, the, he's the Jesus prophet.
3: <laughs> he plays Dolph Lundgren playing the Jesus prophet. <laughs>
1: That's, so, That's so the is, level so, of co- so we comedy are,
3: this
0: guy deals with. So we,
1: you know <laughs> his comedy. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> uh,
0: so there are a couple of other notable actors in the film, some of the more notable roles. Uh, those include uh, Ko Shibasaki as uh, Mitsuko. Uh, she's the one, the kind of uh, the pretty girl who goes crazy, you know, who's always doing her makeup. Uh, she's kind of one of the sub villains, I guess you'd say. And mm. Shiaki Kuriyama as uh, Shigusa. So Kuriyama is probably most recognized to faces uh, to, to to Western audiences and to listeners of Cinema Shock as she's probably one of the most recognizable faces in the film actually because she appears in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill as Gogo Yubari. and that was a role that she got specifically because of her work in Battle Royale. Nice. Yeah, this is
3: that movie that uh, Tarantino says, like, if I could pick any movie that I wish I had done, it would be this one. He's, yeah. It's like that quote's plastered everywhere around this film, but I love Mitsiko though. I think she's great, but I love her. Uh, I think she's uh, really
0: great. And she's I haven't wicked. Really, she is. And, and I, she's got a, that actress has a great screen presence. I mean, uh, I haven't, seen her in anything else that i'm aware of uh, the only I thing
3: i know of that she's done i mean most of her stuff is like japanese stuff she is right. like the main chicken uh keanu reeves uh 47 ronin
0: yeah i haven't seen that though but yeah you're but, right she i did i did read that she was she was in that um
3: yeah so so
0: she's she's mostly japanese she's still she's still working though yeah yeah so we've been talking about the cast a little bit here and uh I'm almost afraid to ask because I can't, I don't have high hopes for this next segment. <laughs> but Todd, any luck finding any uh, any Star Trekkers on this one?
1: Well, I had a feeling uh, that it, this was going to be a little tricky because I usually, you know, for folks who are uh, unfamiliar with our little segment called Who Am I Trekking With, where I look through the cast to see if any of them have been on Star Trek. Taking a page from the uh, the Wachowski stuff who, you know, they're heavily influenced by Asian cinema and Asian storytelling. I was like, I don't know that I'm going to find a lot of these folks. I'm I'm betting there's probably not a lot of crossover here with uh, with Star Trek. Uh, so I went through the entire cast, the entire cast. It's a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is what I normally don't do. I went through the entire production crew. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Tom.
0: What? What commitment to a bit. I know. I know.
1: (laughs) In all of that, I found one. A single person. Hey, that's more than I thought you were (laughs) going to find. I'll be honest. (laughs) Uh, His name is uh, John Allen Snyder. John Snyder. Uh, he that doesn't provi- sound like the point of this movie I <laughs> yeah, was so, just like, where's john I'm, snyder i'm, I'm getting i'm getting to that i'm getting to that he is the uh english dub voice <laughs> uncredited of course uh of katano he plays he, he provides the the voice of the teacher uh, and he he also appeared on star trek the next generation in season three episode seven the enemy which was in 1989 he played centurion bakra and then uh, he appeared again in season five, episode 13, The Masterpiece Society. That's in 1992, this time as Aaron Connor. Uh, but if you'll indulge me for a few minutes, this guy has actually had a pretty interesting career just briefly here. He was in The Warriors in 1979. He was in Crocodile Dundee in 1986. Uh, he was in Eraser 1996 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we should just do
3: a bonus episode on John Snyder.
1: <laughs> <laughs> honestly after i get to some of these things he might warn a bonus episode <laughs> uh he has provided the english dub for a lot of my favorite animes including uh mul- multiple ghost in the shell sequels Uh, Big O from 2000, Outlaw Star in 1998, multiple mobile suit Gundam sequels, and he is the bartender in 1988's Akira. Uh, He appeared in the original Broadway cast of Bent and the world premiere of Dennis Spidellery's vicious and uh speaking of vicious he portrayed the role of sid vicious in the original play uh which of course inspired the movie sid and nancy in (laughs) 1986 yeah he he also had a small role in the film but of course the lead went to uh, mr gary oldman a little bit further just just briefly uh born in boston massachusetts august 23rd 1952 graduated from melrose high in 1970 got his bfa from Boston University College of Fine Arts. He studied under John Abbott, who is also a veteran um, actor and uh, alumni of Star Trek. He was in Star Trek, the original series, season one, episode 26, Errand of Mercy from 1967. Uh, Highly trained in the following dialects, Appalachian, Australian, British, Brooklyn, Canadian, Cockney, French, German, Greek, Irish, Italian, Middle Eastern, Minnesota, New England, Boston, New York City, Russian, Scandinavian, Scottish, Slavic, Eastern European, South African, Afrikaans, Spanish, and Yiddish. But one of the cool things that he does is because he has done so many English dubs of different things overseas and a lot of video games is he doesn't want to take away anything from any of the people who originally portrayed those. So he works under a lot of uh, pseudonyms. He worked under a lot of different stage names. Um, He's also known as Chet excuse me he is also known as chet huntley aka ivan buckley those AKA, are porn names i was yeah, gonna say that. <laughs> these are his porn names clearly AKA, aka jack Emmett, aka jack kinch uh aka Stephen martello uh so yeah he's he's had a he's had a very interesting career seems like a nice guy very respectful of other uh performers and artists and uh he is who we are trekking with this week. And hey, that's well, everybody in Star Trek. Maybe you can get wow. him
0: on the computer resume for an interview one day. I, I you
1: thought. know, he's he's still alive, still working. Yeah. So uh, I'd like I'm, to
3: go ahead and send a shout out to all of the listeners right now listening to this 10 years from now uh, that we're sitting here from the biography of uh, Mr. Snyder <laughs> written by Todd A. Davis. Uh, obviously, you heard about this podcast at the Ford of that book. So
0: we're glad you're here. Uh, you mentioned uh, Ghost in the Shell. I don't think I I, uh, I don't think I mentioned it, but Takeshi Kitano is in Ghost in the Shell, the American live action remake starring really? Scar- scarlet Johansson. Yeah.
3: Oh wow. Yeah, he's one of
0: the, the main <laughs> characters in that. So, well, thank you for going. Thank you for the commitment to your Star Trek bit uh, there, Todd. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> AKA Felix Cooper. There you go. <laughs> uh, I still think those are all poor names. Honestly, none of those sound real. So uh, Kenta, the the son of Kenji Fukusaka, he was, as we mentioned, he was the screenwriter on this, but he actually, he became a producer on it and he became a producer because the studio, Toei, they, so Kenji Fukusaka is kind of known as a, what's the word, a, a, uh, Uh, He's unpredictable. He's a wild card. Loose cannon. (laughs) He's a loose cannon. Uh, So they were kind of worried. Toei was kind of worried about him just making weird decisions, you know? And they actually promoted Kenta to producer to keep an eye on his father, to rein in any of his crazier impulses. Wow. (laughs) So like things like him wanting to cast a 26-year-old, the studio was kind of against that. And Kenta tried to talk him out of it. But that was one that he, Kenji, Kenji was not budging on. But yeah, he so he was on set every day, not just as screenwriter, but as a producer, but also as sort of a not a spy for the studio, but kind of just like <laughs> keeping an eye on things, making thing, making sure it doesn't get too out of hand.
1: He's the uh, he's the unspoken insurance policy, just right. you know, just making <laughs> sure he's the he's the grease in the wheels, the grease in yeah, the yeah, yeah, Yeah,
3: there um, was. I mean, there were things in the in the filming of, of the movie i mean I, I saw with him that he had to talk his dad down from there were fukusaki wanted to do a uh burning the bodies scene uh where they were like setting the corpses of the kids on fire and stuff like that and he uh, apparently wow. they argued over that one uh and he was able to convince him because he said it would have too much of a documentary feel which this movie has a bit of yeah. but also he was he was the director fukusaki was more interested in keeping it action based so that violence wasn't totally real uh the whole time or anything. But anyway, so so yeah, I guess there there were little things like that that they did uh rein him in on. But other
0: than that, I unfortunately I don't have a ton of information about the the actual filming process, like the shoot of the film. Uh it's funny I, I've got I, I got the arrow um 4K of this, which is outstanding by the way. It's really great. Nice. Uh, it's got both versions of the film on it. And there's quite a bit of behind-the-scenes footage. I was talking with Todd about this before the show, uh, and, and I was like, man, there's a. it's a kind of a fly-on-the-wall kind of documentary where there's like one documentary on it that's like an hour long, 50-some-odd minutes long, but there are no talking heads, there's no interviews, it's just a camera following people around on set, which is very interesting to watch if you're interested in, in like the filmmaking process, especially... <sighs> uh this director's filmmaking process which is very different from what you might see from american directors he does a lot of screaming into a megaphone uh he he does a lot of that he yells a lot um but there's not a lot of like actual like antidotes about the making of the film you know yeah i've got
3: uh i got the blu-ray set that comes with this and part two uh and and the theatrical and special edition version i think i watched the special edition version but uh but yeah, I know what documentary you're talking about. I think I watched that this morning because it's it, it's like they, they weren't really trying to make a documentary necessarily right, yeah, yeah. like it because they, they had footage that they could maybe use later in a documentary if they but wanted they to.
0: Yeah, they didn't throw any talking heads or anything into it. Yeah,
3: and it's like when they're talking to the kids, they're like literally asking them things like, are you in love with someone? You know, <laughs> and yeah. Do you do
0: you have a girlfriend or, you know, like what makes you happy? What is your dream? <laughs> and there are a couple of shorter ones on the on on at least on the set that I got that uh, were clearly like made for Japanese television, and it's the same kind of thing though, just kind of interviewing the kids about kind of random stuff or hearing their thoughts. I mean, there's there's a bunch of kids, and it's it's interesting to watch because it's kind of an interesting window into a completely different culture uh, and the, and the way that films are promoted in Japan versus here, uh, but not terribly informational. Yeah, I mean, most of the stuff
3: I got from it was just that, like they began shooting on June twentieth of two thousand, yeah. uh, and then the last day was September second of two thousand. Of course, they came back in a several months later.
0: I did find that uh, they they shot so they shot the film all over Japan, but the main location that island was an actual uninhabited island called uh, Hachijo Kojima, which was several hundred miles south of Tokyo, in the sea. Uh, so, aka
1: just, Joe DiMucci.
0: So, other than I, I say it's uninhabited, but it was inhabited by wild goats, which you see a lot of in the that that footage on those <laughs> blu A lot of goats <laughs> just hanging out in the background. I
3: mean, there's there's like little fun facts I saw, like uh you know, no stunt doubles, none of that stuff for these kids. They did everything. Yeah, um, yeah. There was
1: very like because in going through and putting together. uh you Know whom I'm trekking with. I was like, I got to the stunt section and there was one name. I was like, Yeah, no, come it's, on, yeah, it's pretty wild.
0: <laughs> it's pretty wild, and there actually aren't a lot of, uh, I think only two actors actually got squibbed. I think they all, not you know, uh, yeah. uh, granted, if you if you watch the special edition, a lot of there's a lot of CGI blood added to that, yeah, yeah, uh, which is uh, like the, the irre- questionable
3: part of the special edition is like when you see that, you're that's the part that stands out the most,
1: I think, sure, is that CG yeah, yeah. Blood
3: yeah beat Takeshi did that uh or Kitano did the uh he actually did that painting yeah it's yeah. nice
0: at the end <laughs> yeah That's the painting great. at the end oh that
1: uh... <laughs> where That's is great. that painting
0: I don't know I hope it's, <laughs> it's probably in his house
3: yeah uh, <laughs> yeah it's framed in his bathroom
0: <laughs> so we've talked a lot on uh various episodes on this podcast about filmmakers battling with the MPAA over the content of their films. Now, this is obviously not a distinctly American experience. And in fact, many other countries have censorship boards that are run by the government that are designed to oversee film ratings, uh, which is actually the reason that the MPAA here in America was originally created. It was created as an unbiased organization to help keep the governments from censoring films, especially during the era of the Hays Code. Mm. After World War II, Allied forces uh, stationed in Japan took over the role of censoring films in Japan. And then in 1949, under the instruction of U- U.S. occupational forces, uh, Japan's film industry actually created its own self-regulating organization, which was based on the Hays Code. And to this day, that organization, which is known as IRIN, uh, E-I-R-I-N, which is a abbreviation of a long, a much longer Japanese name that I'm not going to try to uh pronounce here but they're they're pretty well known as end. so they're in charge of handing out ratings for films in Japan still they're still around whereas the Hayes Code you know went away MPAA took over uh and there's a you could do a whole podcast about the history of the MPAA but oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah so this is Japanese version of that essentially and their ratings are pretty similar to the U.S.'s there's a G rating uh general audiences there's a PG-12 rating uh, obviously similar to PG-13. And then there are actually two different restricted ratings. Uh, there's the R-15 and the R-18. So those are age-restricted ratings that only allow viewers over the ages of 15 or 18. Uh, and, I, and I don't know that they allow you to go in with, with a parent or guardian like an R-rated movie. Uh, the, the, from what I understand, they, they function a little more similarly to like an NC-17. Like if you, uh, if it's an R-15 film, if you're under 15, you're not getting in with or without a parent. That's what I understand. Mm. If I'm wrong about that, if any, anyone who is more of an expert in Japanese cinema, please let me know. But that's kind of what I understood from it.
3: I want to know how much or how much, or how many severed heads make up that difference for that three
0: year. Well, if it's where, yeah, yeah, I was just about to say like, if it's one titty, (laughs) it's an R15. (laughs) Is it both, both titties? R eighteen,
3: yeah. You got to be eighteen to <laughs> see two titties at the same time,
1: <laughs> but, AKA Harry Malloy. What? <laughs> I don't
3: even get that. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I
1: don't
0: know. Are you are you still just naming that guy's um, that guy's pseudonyms?
1: Yeah, yeah, still yeah. Still going.
0: <laughs> Harry Malloy is the person
3: that stars in the R eighteen films.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So R-15 is probably the rarest rating for a film to get. But nonetheless, when Battle Royale went before the ratings board, that's exactly what they gave it, an R-15. And Fukusaku was not happy. Uh, He opposed the ratings. He he had made the film for viewers the age of the characters in the film. He wanted junior high kids to see this movie. So with that rating, many of them, including the main actress in the movie, she was not old enough to go see the movie in the theater. She was not allowed to see it uh, because she was only 14. So he submitted an appeal, but before the board could rule on the appeal, the members of the National Diet, which is Japan's government legislature, uh, basically it's like their House of Representatives. Uh, the or National a sad, Diet, man. <laughs> <laughs> did you read that McSweeney's article about <laughs> yeah, your favorite sad dad, man? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> but the. The National Diet said that the film was harmful to teenagers, and furthermore, uh, they cri- they actually criticized the film industry's ratings. Uh, so Fukusaku ended up dropping his appeal to appease the Diet because he was worried because this had led to them criticizing the industry as a whole. He would actually he was actually worried that they would pursue an increase in film regulation if he kind of pushed the subject. Hmm. So. He did what any self-respecting film director would do is that he went to the press and he made a statement encouraging kids to just sneak into the movie, which they did. A lot of them snuck into the movie
1: and tell and tell the national diet to just go focus on carbs and and, and, (laughs) you know, not eating certain things after a certain time of day and things like that. It was like he was
3: essentially like if you're <laughs> wanting to know how to deal with the parents that don't want you to see this film, you've got to sneak into this film to see
0: right.
3: <laughs> see what it's all about. This yeah. is what you do From here.
0: And of course, as we've learned time and time again on this show, when someone censors or attempts or attempts to censor a work of art. All they're doing is shining a light on it. All they're doing is making people want to see it that much more. Uh, It becomes that much more appealing. Like, oh, you don't want us to see it? Now I've got to see it because I've got to know what you think I shouldn't be allowed to see exactly that's <laughs> what's the <laughs> fuss about
3: time. i need to know so yeah. yeah it's it's immediately you're just asking for it to become more popular
0: yeah and that's exactly what happened here so despite the government's attempt to censor the film or, or at least limit the audience with its rating the film was a massive success when it was released uh, it was released on december 16 2000 it would go on to to gross 3.11 billion yen, which is almost $30 million in American dollars. That made wow. it the third highest grossing film of 2001 in Japan after Spirited Away and Pokemon Forever, which is huge because those it, it, those two films are still considered massive Japanese films 20 yeah. years Yeah, and I mean,
1: looking at the marketing, like both of those like aimed at children. And we, I mean, we know from movies here in the states the stuff that's aimed at kids does really really well because you're not only paying like the adults are buying the tickets so Mm -hmm. the adults buy one for themselves and one for the kids so the grosses are huge on those
0: and they've already cut out half the population by yeah giving this an r15 rating and it still made that kind of success imagine what it could have done if they'd given it like a pg-12 rating you know (laughs) Uh, But it's massively successful, still controversial, but massively successful. And then over the next two years, it was distributed to 22 countries across Asia, Australia, Europe, South America and Mexico. Now, you hear that list of of countries and there is one that is conspicuously absent from that list. And that's the United States. So this film was actually it was screened to a test audience in the US in the early 2000s. But this was not long after the Columbine High School shooting, which was in April of 1999. Uh, So reactions from the audience at the time were not great because this is like (laughs) less than a year after that. And so with the exception of some film festival screenings, the film was never released in the U.S. For 11 years, it was not released in the U.S. Uh, There were multiple reasons why, but uh, one of of them was that Toei was kind of worried that especially due to the Columbine shootings and because of the way that the matrix had attracted attention in the wake of those shootings. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, They were kind of worried that they would have legal troubles if the film were released in the U S but despite all of that, and, and despite some reservations of the Japanese government, when the film was released in Japan and in other countries, like it was released in England pretty quickly after its Japanese release and it received, a lot of great notices from critic. It was it was successful, so I have to wonder, you know, a film that it, we're, we'll talk about its legacy here in a bit. But this film is pretty well respected overall. But I have to imagine there are still people out there who, who don't respect it as much as others.
3: <laughs> well, it's uh yeah you. You know, if you want to catch it on uh, on Japanese TV, you got to stay up pretty late, uh, and uh, you know the time zones and such. So, some people have seen it now. Now they need a nap. wasn't my best one
0: that wasn't your best
1: segue but (laughs) But, you know what i saw i saw where you were going with that and i appreciate the effort thanks
3: (laughs) thanks. it was on the spot too so i I give myself some cushion (laughs) for that uh but yeah there there are some people unhappy with this movie Uh, i i think some people are disappointed and so i'm prefacing this this way because the reviews for this one are less funny than a lot of the films because I think some people are just expecting like a critically great movie and they get a little disappointed. And I think a lot of people are set with the expectation this is such a violent, horrible movie because of the way it's portrayed. And if you watch it now,
0: it's it's kind of tame. Uh, compared yeah, but, to- but in 2000... 2000- the the landscape was a lot different i feel
3: well like. I'm, and i'm just yeah. saying but like when some of these reviews like in they're more recent yeah yeah they're more recent and uh so i, I think some people are disappointed there but anyway uh here's tornike 90119056819 who you might know is on instagram <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this movie is full of bad acting and nonsense Please do not watch this movie or you'll be as mad as me to waste your time. And now I have to write 10 lines of stupidness to submit this review because with less lines, it won't submit. I, this is old IMDB, so apparently this is the thing. you got to have at least 10 lines. <laughs> so, he says, so I have to write why does lines he... of stupidness to submit this review because with less lines, it won't be submitted. The overall region can be characterized as being made up of various interconnected mountain ranges and plateaus that do not exceed 3,400 meters in elevation. Prominent features of the area include Keti volcanic plateau lakes, including Tabatsguri and Tavarani as well as mineral
0: water and hot springs the overall region can be <laughs> it's just like it goes so <laughs> dumb it's a wikipedia page about the island yeah uh, w- you know the other option he had was to not write a review yeah could
1: <laughs> or that. he could have uh listed uh all the uh stage names for uh for for john snyder yeah, yeah. true true <laughs> like aka ian alden
3: ian alden still sounds like a porn name uh, Gary McBain says I have read some people comment that this film is harrowing brilliant compelling etc I can only ask what the fuck are you smoking this film is so bad that it is an in- inadvertent comedy the acting plot cheesy scenes of violence all of it utter garbage this film is so bad that it's good quite possibly this is the worst film ever
0: made uh, that is that ever person. made The worst film ever made. I hate, I hate hyperbole. (laughs) I could have done better with a GoPro and a
3: MacBook is the title of this review. Absolute garbage. As the title says, I could have done this better at home with consumer grade hardware or software. This plays like a classroom project for a high school rather than the cult classic the other reviewers are talking about, which unfortunately duped me into watching this trash. It seems like no work was put into any of the fight scenes. If you can call them that people took forever to die. And when they died, it was more reminiscent to kids playing laser tag and playing dead as kids used to do.
0: What about the scene where the guys just uh, are laying there dead and naked and their dicks are just destroyed. Um,
1: like how what kids kind of laser do.
0: tag is that? Yeah, It's, like, it's <laughs> where well, you're I playing, playing know, with like actual lasers <laughs> used to
1: like carve things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: David M. Klein says, one out of five stars, piece of garbage, no redeeming qualities, hammer your toe before watching to lessen the pain. That's the subject of the review. The actual review says, I'm an ordinary person, not a lover of cinema or artsy films. I like action movies and stupid movies alike. Juvenile movies are fine. Serious dramas are fine. I sat down to watch this with my girlfriend on a quiet Saturday night based on all the positive reviews. What a piece of garbage. I wish I could get back those two hours of my life. I see all these five-star ratings and I wonder if I'm missing something. Then I am reminded of the song lyrics, all the people tell me so, but what do all the people know? The acting is awful. I mean, pathetic. As some kind of future, futuristic cautionary tale, this premise is ridiculous. As satire, the movie is pathetic. I'm racking my brain to come up with anything. I mean, anything redeeming about this movie nada zippo zilch if you are a regular person looking for a movie with any redeeming qualities to kill some time i suggest you just jump off a building before you watch
0: this
2: <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> uh
0: this is That's not uh, gonna solve your problem if you're <laughs> wanting to watch right. a, a, another movie a regular a regular guy movie it's a regular person movie
2: oh God
0: go endless. watch fucking Free Guy starring Ryan Reynolds. Hey, you don't have you to go. jump off a building.
3: <laughs> that movie's fun. Uh, Park a, Ranger a good, says- It's a
0: good movie for regular people.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Park Ranger says, I'm incredibly stupid and this movie is too stupid for me.
0: <laughs> well, hey, you know what? At least he's self-aware.
1: <laughs> First step to solving any problem <laughs> is recognizing that there is one.
0: <laughs> Daniel says,
3: you're telling me this dude got shot 17 times and he got up to eat a cookie? <laughs> uh let's see here what what else can i choose from uh hassan says this movie gave me cancer no it didn't <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see <laughs> that guy's a liar <laughs> uh fine let's do this, this is the final one uh the most style confused nonsensical horribly acted day to night shitty color graded what the fuck is happening pot lit boy What? why can people survive eight thousand three hundred seventy-seven shots to the body why the fuck is everyone making such a teenage drama out of this killing master? Does everyone just pretend to like this because Tarantino does? This is unbearable. I couldn't even write something substantial about this. 3.8 on Letterboxd? Really? I'm just wondering how something as tacky as this is considered good cinema. Generic music, bland action, unnecessary love stories, terrible performances. I know this film inspired a lot of young adult dystopian thrillers, but at least they tried to level up this embarrassing material to greater scale and significance
0: Ooh. oh that's brutal yeah. <laughs> <But> i don't <laughs> i i mean i i cards on the table you guys know i love this movie but i'm curious had you guys was this your first experience with it what what do what you guys what's your history with this film this Listen, is and i first... feel like we watched it
3: together back in the day i feel like yeah. i went to your house and watched it or something that's probably
1: true mm. this is uh this was first viewing for me
0: yeah yeah what'd you think todd
1: uh you know um, i don't like
0: that face todd yeah i don't like that face you're
1: making (laughs) I, I, i i i'm you know a lot of the reviewers that we just went through felt really really strongly about it but yeah the acting's not super super up there uh i i tend to get into the characters more and when they're all dressed exactly alike it creates a little bit of confusion as to you know okay okay now who is this and what are they you know what's going on what are they doing i mean i know what they're doing but like they're they're all doing i wasn't gonna say it gary exactly (laughs) like the the way the what i said that's racist i i said they're dressed alike (laughs) god no no yeah, yeah anyway when they're like 40 how many 43 44 42 42 kids yeah, but like two was, die
0: immediately so. i was like
1: that is that is too many <laughs> yeah but it only it focuses on
0: it only focuses on maybe a dozen of them regularly
1: yeah yeah and you know you've i, I do i didn't really feel super connected with any of the stories going on there weren't you know and it was a little confusing as to like okay so it's the government's thing but their are teachers involved like so the government hires the teachers I, okay well yeah i guess yeah <laughs> uh but yeah i just i don't know it i'm not saying it's horrible but i don't think it it's not aged i don't think it aged particularly well um i mean again i watched the the special edition the director's cut and it's just some of those digital squibs just like uh, what I, did, are, I, did, are, I didn't what like we the doing digital here? <laughs> i did like
3: i mean the requiem's there were probably too many. Like yeah, I didn't was- need the one of the basketball bouncing uh, up to that dead kid say, yeah. watch out for <laughs> my girlfriend or whatever, you know, yeah. but, uh, uh but I did like the interaction between uh uh beat Takashi and the chick, you know, that, that, that stuff was kind of nice. And the ball think- game was kind of good. The basketball game, like just yeah. to see that they had all been like celebrating together and, just how quickly that could turn on its head i i can see like this movie i could see people not liking it i could see why you wouldn't like uh but i enjoyed it and oddly enough i i didn't expect this but the wife enjoyed it and yeah. uh so uh i was kind of expecting her to give me that other side of it but she actually was like that's really good i like that movie and uh I don't know. It's a, it, it, it I, I, I get what you're saying, Todd. Like I, I see like certain parts of it that I feel like there's, there's stuff you're missing or it is kind of a big leap to go from like the school to, you know, the,
1: yeah.
3: the uh, island <laughs> of killing each other, but like the, all the
1: kids boycotted school, what the hell were they all doing there? <laughs> the, um, Yeah,
3: I I feel like I saw a bunch of reviews when I was going through them all, too, or like people that were huge fans of the novels or the novel and the manga or manga uh, that hated the way the movie did stuff. Um, Mm. There are quite a lot of
0: differences uh, between the two, which we haven't really gone through, but you could I mean. If you want to go online, you can find a, a big list. They, they they strayed pretty far from the novel on a lot of the characters, but the overall gist of it was there. The One of the main things is that the novel is set in, it's not set in Japan. It's set like present day instead of in the future. And it's set in this sort of fictional country of this, like, eight, this like a unified Asia kind of country, which was something oh, that wow. Japan was actually working towards. In World War II. so this the novel kind of takes place in a present day where Japan won the war and they've created this like big state that kind of encompasses all of Asia. Uh, so, Fugasaku wanted to set it slightly in the future, but in Japan because he, he, he there's some satirical elements that he really wanted to highlight in this because it, remember his his distrust of the Japanese government that was created back when, when he was in, uh, in world war II. that's a major part of the movie. And you lose that if you don't set it actually in Japan and have the actual Japanese government involved, you know, yeah. I mean, this movie is very much a cult film. I mean, this is a film that was released overseas, incredibly controversial, and it took over a decade to be released here in America because, uh, and, and then, you know, you've got over the years, you've got people seeing it in America, either via bootleg, bootleg copies or imported DVDs, which is how I actually watched it. Me and Gary, we probably watched that imported DVD because I had a region free DVD player back in the day. This was before a lot of these Asian movies before like Tartan Extreme started being released here in America. I feel like I remember
3: seeing this one along with like Audition and like yeah. Dark Water or yeah. something with you. And
0: a lot of those were imports that I had to get because you couldn't get them at the time. Now you can just go stream them anywhere. But a lot of people saw it that way because I had heard a lot about this movie. This was probably right around the time right after Kill Bill came out. Like or 2005 or so. So by the time the movie gets released officially in the u.s in 2011 it has a considerable cult following because for years it felt like a film that you kind of weren't supposed to see mm. like it felt like you were getting away with something by getting an import dvd or getting a bootleg of it so by yeah. time it's released it's like this is a movie that is a major cult film uh, and of course and there were other reasons besides fear of legal ramifications that Toei never sold the rights to the film one of the major reasons that they they didn't do that back in the early two thousands was because they were actually asking a lot of money for us distribution rights. They wanted uh, the report that I saw said they wanted one to $2 million up front, which is more than any distributors was willing to give them. Plus they expected a wide release like crouching tiger hidden dragon had received in 2000. They wanted this in multiplexes all across the country. Oh wow. But the problem was the only distributors who had pockets deep enough to get this film into as many screens as something like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon were the subsidiaries of the major studios. In the case of Crouching Tiger, that was Sony Pictures Classics. You know, that's who they released their smaller films through. And getting someone like Sony or Disney or Warner Brothers or any of the majors to release this through one of their smaller boutique arms was pretty much a no-go because of the film's content. Like, there's no way that Disney is going to release this through Touchstone (laughs) or whatever. And, And it's a bunch of kids getting killed a year after a Columbine. You know, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And then, of course, there was never going to be a guarantee that the MPAA would play ball with this. The film would eat, this film would have a very hard time getting an R rating without major re-editing. And most distributors are not going to release a film unrated or, or release a film with an NC-17 because you're limiting your audience. You're not going to pay $2 million to buy a movie and then not, not have the tools to make the money off of it. That you, need, mm. you know? I mean, I love this movie. I've loved this movie for, gosh, going on, what, 15, t- close to 20 years now when I saw it in the mid-2000s. Uh, and I actually think it's aged very well. Uh, no, yeah, some of the effects and stuff like the, the squibs, uh, that doesn't bother me, but they haven't aged incredibly well, but it's not enough to take me out of the film at all. I think the story of the film's aged very well. Uh, most of the conversations about it are, of course, about its violence, and that makes sense because it, it is a very violent film. Uh, it does seem tame by some of today's standards when you've seen some, you know, some horror movies that are much more graphic. I just right think people t- are
3: expecting like the heads to get blown straight off the right. bodies. Yeah. This is
0: not Takashi Mike. This is not that <laughs> that extreme. Uh, but it is a very violent film. But there are also a lot of there's a lot of other stuff going on beneath the surface, and I think that's what makes the movie work. And what, what makes the movie still work today? Uh, because it, it is. A, and I think you get this a little bit more in the special edition, but it's very much a metaphor about the kind of clicks that teenagers have when they're in high school, you know, and all these little, you know, you've got the relationship between the younger and the older generation, which was something that was very much on the director's mind. This It's also sort of a screed against fascist-like government control, which is, some, again, something very close to the director's heart, but it's also a really fun movie. It's just a, it's just a fun movie to watch. I think, uh, uh, I think it's a
3: fat incel just, uh, right out the door, just waited and just started shooting people with an arrow.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it does help. I think that Fukusaku, who again, was 70 years old when he made this movie, he's thoroughly on the side of the kids in this movie. Uh, even though, they, I mean, there are obviously heroes and villains among the kids themselves, uh, but he always paints the film's true villains as the adults the adults are always seen as the true villains even the kids that are bad who are who end up being villains you get a lot of flashbacks that kind of explain their behavior especially in um uh, what's her name mitsuka yeah uh, which i think that i think that seems only in the special edition that's but right you get, yeah you get this idea of why she is the way she is and it's often because of the failure of the adults in their lives i mean fukusaku even as a you know, septuagenarian is still siding with the kids and not with the adults because he he's had this lifelong sort of distrust of adults. Yeah, and I think the age of the kids is pretty crucial too because fifteen. I don't know if you guys remember what it's like to be fifteen, but it fucking sucks. <laughs> like, <being laughs> fifteen is like the shittiest age uh, because your body's going through all this weird stuff. You're getting acne, uh, you, you know. Uh, When you're 15, you're you no longer want or need your hand to be held by adults, really, but you're also you're not an adult. You don't have the confidence that you do when you're 18. And you still can't drive anywhere. Well, yeah, you can when you're 15. You can get a learner's permit. Well, (laughs) yes. (laughs) And also at 15, kids have all these little dramas in their lives, you know, like rivalries with other classmates or crushes, and you know, all these little things that seem when you're 15, they seem like their life or death, which Mm -hmm. as you get older, you kind of look back on and realize how silly it was to get so up in arms about things. Because once you're an adult, those kinds of things are very much like who gives a fuck, you know, but when you're 15, (laughs) that's your whole world, you know, all the, all these little dramas of high school and junior high, but imagine a 15 year old given free reign to act out on those feelings and all of a sudden, you've got the license to resolve any issue with your classmates, any petty little rivalry uh, with you know, one click versus another, uh, with extreme prejudice. And you're given the license to do that. It, it's this. It's basically Lord of the Flies, but instead of being stranded on an island, these kids are forced into the situation by their government. Like that's that's pretty pretty wild.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah that's, that's a pretty wild concept for
3: sure that sounds like he just woke up from hearing me talk about yeah sorry <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah i just realized yeah sorry yeah uh, i'm I'm here i'm present i'm in the moment he's Here's still here.
0: like yeah, but still fuck it <laughs> <laughs> now due to the film's popularity in japan something really interesting happened that i can't personally think of another example of but a special edition of the film was released. We've talked about it. Uh, we, we've mentioned it several times on the show, but what this special edition is that we're talking about, it's, it's got an extra eight minutes of footage, but this wasn't footage that was left on the cutting room floor the first time around. They reinserted it as like a director's cut. It is sometimes referred to as a director's cut, but this was actually mostly newly filmed material. Fukusaku gathered his cast and crew back together about six months after the film's release to shoot entirely new stuff. Because the movie was doing well, they wanted a reason to make even more money off of it, basically. So a few months later, they go back, shoot some more footage, re-release it in theaters as a special edition with eight extra minutes of footage. And, and then you've got some other stuff uh, thrown in there as well. Uh, new opening credits, new special effects, things like that. And and the material includes flashbacks to a basketball game uh, that we, we mentioned that's used as kind of framework for the entire story. Uh, that flashback I mentioned that expands on uh, Mitsuko's backstory. Uh, if you haven't seen the special edition, maybe you only watched the theatrical, there's a flashback that she comes home, her mom's drunk. There's this weird dude in her house. Turns out uh, the weird dude basically tries to molest her. She knocks him down the stairs and kills him. So that 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 sort of explains her anger towards men and people in general, you know. But there are also three epilogues. I think what are they called? Requiem's in the film. Yeah, requiem. Uh, th- those are all newly filmed scenes that were not in the theatrical cut. Uh, there's some additional CGI, like the squibs we keep mentioning. Uh, and th- so this gets released in theaters. It's also very successful. And then not long after that, work began on a sequel, uh, Battle Royale Requiem was uh, to see the return of Kenji Fukasaku as a director, but he unfortunately died of prostate cancer on January 12, 2003. He shot a single scene with Takeshi Kitano, and then he got his diagnosis, had to leave the film, ended up passing away not long after that. And his son, Kenta Fukasaku, who had written the screenplay to the sequel as well, and this screenplay is based on a an original idea it's not based on a, a book or a manga or anything this was a, a new idea by kenta uh, he actually took over directing duties and finished the film which was released in july of 2003 gary you said you got the part two as part of that box set. did you have a chance to watch it
3: i didn't have a chance to watch it i really wanted to sit down and watch it i heard like it got some issues for like anti-american sentiment and uh, stuff we deserve like it. that yeah <laughs> well <laughs> I mean, I, I've know. never seen the sequel, so I, I was just curious if you had an opinion. Yeah, on I, I really wanted to watch it and just time got away from me, so I never yeah. did. I remember reading all the stuff about like remakes and stuff that were going to happen with this. and
0: Yeah, they've talked just... about remakes. They've talked about TV shows, I think was the most recent uh, remake idea that I saw. They actually released a 3D version of the original movie for its 10th anniversary in 2010. Uh, they, they went and... Uh, I mean, Kenta, uh, Kenji's son, kind of oversaw it, and then they released that, and I think it came out on, it was it was supposed to come out on DVD or something here in, in the US, not long after the original one came out uh, in 2011 or so, but that release got canceled for some reason, so it's never actually been released here, the 3D version
3: yeah i mean i saw like um roy a producer roy lee had the rights as early as like 2006 and like new line had even announced that 2008 and then like the um uh virginia tech shooting happened and so then it got put on hold again like right after that and then uh uh that roy lee had said um as, as of around since the Hunger Games came out in like 2012, uh, he basically said that it had kind of died because uh, his quote was audiences would just now see it as a copy of Hunger Games. Hunger Most Games, of yeah. them wouldn't know that Battle Royale came first. He said it's right. unfair, but that's reality.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the sequel we talked about earlier how, uh, you know, some some real life stuff had kind of affected, say, the novel. And the sequel actually was. It was supposed to come out on DVD in like 2004, and it actually got postponed to later on in the year because of a uh, a murder. Uh, the the Sasibo slashing is what it was known as, where a 12 year old schoolgirl was murdered by a, an 11 year old uh, female classmate, and Jeez. it would apparently apparently the the uh, perpetrator had seen Battle Royale. So they got a lot of press, obviously negative press because of that. So they had to kind of postpone the sequel's uh, home video release as a result of that. So in the year since its release, uh, Battle Royale has garnered a, a major cult following. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's often listed on list of best movies. Honestly, you, you see this on best movies of all time list You see it on a lot of best horror movies of all time. Although I personally don't consider this a horror movie, just because a movie has gore doesn't make it horror. But you know, that's just me. Uh, I, I consider action slash sci-fi. I guess was where I would place this. But still, regardless, you see this movie on a lot of lists of best of whatever. Uh, it's a very highly regarded movie, and it, it has, of course, become hugely influential with the term Battle Royale coming to be redefined to refer to the type of game depicted in the film. Uh, of course, we've, we've mentioned the co- Hunger Games. It's hard not to think of the Hunger Games when you're talking about the influence of Battle Royale, although Suzanne Collins claims to have been unaware of the book and the film when she wrote the original trilogy. Uh, but the similarities are pretty striking, and that's, that's a little hard to believe, although, the author of the original novel says that hey you know sometimes writers just arrive at similar ideas from different directions it does happen which is true so you know who knows you see it
1: you see it in comedy all the time
0: (laughs) oh yeah yeah like carlos mencia right yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so even recent films like the belco experiment uh the purge ready or not uh the hunt they owe a, a lot to battle royale that sort of idea of people hunting people. Of course, that originated, that, that idea was around long before Battle Royale. We mentioned Lord of the Flies earlier. Uh, the most dangerous game is another example. But the idea of it being like a, a game and teams against each other, this is sort of something that really Battle Royale, that's an idea that that, that brought to the table. Uh, and of course, the recent Netflix incredible, like huge phenomenon that is Squid Game was majorly influenced by battle royale which is something that that show's director has fully admitted he has fully said that hey this is heavily influenced by battle royale
3: mm. yeah and, and you know there's the there's the game thing but like i mean that's seriously a phenomenon right now too like straight up the uh player unknown that crew like um, I mean, it kind of spawned from Minecraft and this and Battle Royale, the idea of like this PUBG and like Fortnite's a huge one right now. Yeah, this a lot of style. video
0: games. I mean, a lot of video games. And, and Fortnite's obviously probably the biggest one right now. But all these like Battle Royale style games, they are referred to as Battle Royale style games because of this movie. Because before this movie, the term Battle Royale was pretty strictly a wrestling term. Right. So I've got a question for you guys. Then, uh, as we always do towards the end of the episode, if uh, we get into further viewing here, if you guys were to, if you guys were to pair Battle Royale with another film as a double feature, what, uh, where, are you, what are you going with? What do you pair this with? And don't say The Hunger Games.
3: <laughs> well, I'm out. <laughs> uh, you could do Cube. That series is kind of cool, that horror,
0: like sci-fi kind of thing. Um, Yeah, I could see that, I guess, yeah. I'm I'm not a huge fan of Cube, but yeah, I I see where you're coming from.
1: uh, I was, uh, you know, one of the things when when, uh, I see a movie like this is kind of trying to figure out if it's not something like Hunger Games where it's like, okay, Jennifer Lawrence is going to survive. You know, looking at something like this with a a larger cast, uh, I always like to try to figure out, uh, who's gonna survive or who done it? So I'm going to pair this. I'm gonna take a hard turn on this and pair this with Clue. And uh, okay. I, yeah, yeah, just because <laughs> sure. I, lo- I love, to to out, I love to try to figure out. I love to try to figure out who's gonna survive. And so I love the mystery. See, I, yeah, mystery I, th- I think
0: this movie pretty clearly stakes out who who your final boy and final girl are.
1: <laughs> yeah but not initially not in a room full of 40 other kids
0: well yeah but it became it becomes clear pretty early on i think yeah you could do that ice ice tea movie the deadly game or whatever for yeah which least. is it's based on the most dangerous game uh that movie is that movie is not good <laughs> 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 it is not good i remember renting that back in the day it sucked <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm gonna go with uh, the Running Man, I and mean, we talked about the, you know, the, I lock, about the long that when walk we were
1: talking earlier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we
0: talked about the long walk being like a major influence on this, but the the Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger from 1987, another Stephen King adaptation, uh, is very similar to this, I, I think, in that in in the Running Man, if I remember, the contestants are like criminals that are on death row. or yeah, something. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Uh, but the government puts them all together and then broadcast it as like a piece of entertainment you know and and i honestly like the running man i think the running man's a really fun movie oh yeah yeah it's a great one it's a fun one uh so that would be my pick other than i guess other movies by this director especially battles without honor and humanity that that entire saga i think would be pretty good to to pair with this
3: you could do um i guess not say i was gonna say that one harry potter movie (laughs) <laughs> the goblet of fire. Uh, the goblet of fire. To,
0: they're not trying to kill each <laughs> other, though. They're <laughs> not trying to murder each other in that. It's just that's just literally just like a game.
3: Well, tournament. someone dies, Justin. Spoiler Girl, alert. Spoiler
1: alert. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs>
0: I'd
1: like to apologize um, for Gary's outburst.
3: <laughs> you know, there was the comic series. I'm surprised Todd didn't bring it up, but I remembered it now that uh, it was like a Avengers Arena or something that happened. Mm-hmm. And and that was I was just going to bring that up just because it was based exactly on Battle Royale, like the logo Avengers arena, like the AA logo is the Battle Royale logo on the comic series. Okay. But it's like arcade like creates like a, an arena and puts like a powered people in the place and they've got to survive or whatever and battle with each other until there's like one
0: left or something. So anyway, I just thought of that interesting i've ne- i hadn't heard of that but <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool when, when how long ago was that published i mean this was
1: i mean it was uh, a few years uh, maybe ago. maybe not more than 10 years ago not not long
0: a vidger's was 2012 okay so about 10 years ago oh and i see the copies uh, the the cover of the uh it is it's exactly the yeah they're they're very clearly yeah they're not they're they're not even pretending that it's (laughs) not based on battle royale oh that's cool very cool i was not aware of that Uh, i might have to go read those so we did this as sort of a one-shot series uh you know as as part of this cinema shock roulette series that we're going to be doing every now and then although like i I joked about it before but we you could do a whole series on kenji fukusaku uh if you wanted to and like just highlight some of the, the the bigger films in his filmography but, you know, just because this episode, uh, this movie, Battle Royale, is not part of a larger series, doesn't mean that it's not an important, impactful piece of filmmaking. Uh, you know, on, on a lot of, on our last series, the Wachowski series that we did, we talked a lot about the influence of The Matrix. You know, Battle Royale may not seem as directly responsible for changes in genre filmmaking as that film was. You know, The Matrix is basically changed action movie filmmaking forever, but the influence of Battle Royale is pretty huge. I mean, whether Hunger Games is a direct, you know, di- if it's directly responsible for something like the Hunger Games or not, uh, regardless, I mean, something like we mentioned Fortnite, we mentioned, you know, all these other movies and all these other video games, especially video games, I think, are hugely in debt to Battle Royale. Uh, this this movie is a major Influence on genre films every film that you will see from now until the end of the time that has some sort of game where people are forced to kill each other will be because of this movie and because of the book i mean that's a pretty big piece of, i mean yeah that's a that's a niche piece of genre but i mean i i rattled off like five of them earlier including like the purge which I think is very influenced by this, which is what, like six films deep at this point, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah. So Would you I, like do like that, <laughs> I do think that game. Wait, it wasn't that, that was jigsaw. Yeah, that was
3: jigsaw. I was just saying saw also <laughs> like, I mean, technically <laughs> yeah, it was a
0: game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. It's not, it's just jigsaw trying to kill people, but <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah.
3: I guess it's not really everybody,
0: <laughs> but my, my point it. is that this is, you know, although it may not seem like it on the service, this is a major piece of genre filmmaking and a, a, it's a huge movie. And if we're if someone were creating a list of the most influential genre films of the last say three decades, this is absolutely towards the top of the list. Uh, I mean it, it would have to be. And I think the I think genre filmmaking is better because this movie exists. So next week we're going to start a new series. You guys ready for this? I'm, I'm ready. ready for a new oh, series.
3: Yeah. I've never been so. more ready. We, we've anything. mentioned it
0: before. We've, we've teased it. We're going to go into, I think we're doing five or so episodes uh, on this series because we're going to split this, this upcoming filmmaker's filmography up among multiple series because otherwise we wouldn't be here like most of 2022 talking about his movies. So we're going to talk about them in stages. And this first one is going to be about uh, probably his most well-known stage. Uh, we're going to be talking about David Cronenberg. Uh, We're going to start all the way back at the beginning. We're starting with Shivers, uh, which is his first feature-length film. And we're going to go all the way through the fly on this particular series. And don't worry, down the line, we will talk about Crash. We will talk about uh, a history of violence. You know, we're going to get to those one day. But this series is going to specifically talk about his body horror stuff, uh, which, again, he's, he's mostly known for body horror, even though that was only about a decade of his career. Uh, but they are some of the most influential horror films that he ever made. So we're starting next week with Shivers. Uh, If you guys want to watch it along with us, you can find it streaming. Head to cinemashock.net. We'll have a list of everywhere that you can find it. Uh, There on the website, you can, of course, always find our every episode that we've ever done. Find all of our series grouped together. So if you want to go back and listen to the Wachowski series from beginning to end, uh, it's there all grouped together for you. You can find our merch. You can find links to our Discord. You can find links to our social media. Uh, Where can you guys be found as far as social media goes on the internet? Hey, Matt, this is
3: Gary Horn on all the things.
1: And if you're a fan of Star Trek, please join me and my rotating panel of family, friends, and the occasional Star Trek alumni, which we actually just secured our next cast member uh, guest. For the show. Is uh it join that us- guy
0: we were talking about is uh, it-, it is.
1: I'm gonna keep that under wraps for now. Just no, I mean we, uh, it's the guy with it. the porn names. Is it the guy with the porn names? Oh no, 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 not not uh, no, not him. You
3: should do a whole series of him just coming on as each of his his names.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm I yeah, I absolutely I absolutely might. But uh join us for the computer resume podcast, a show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans, new and old. Uh, tomorrow, actually, I'll be recording our one-year anniversary show oh. with uh, my lovely wife, Kat Davis. And you are you find- still on, you're still on Enterprise, though. Yes, we are still on Enterprise, <laughs> but uh, that is uh, drawing to a close. We are we are definitely over the halfway point uh, with uh, with Enterprise, but we're and having when, fun with it.
0: When Enterprise ends, you go straight into Tos. Uh,
1: no, it'll actually go into Discovery. There there know. there's a few of the short treks between there but okay. uh but yeah we will pretty much go into discovery after that. All right. okay. Um and you can find But discovery's not
0: over so how does that work?
1: Well it's it's well and uh, this is behind the scenes shit we'll talk about Yeah this later. it's yeah, no, uh, <laughs> and he it,
3: can't talk about it too much cuz it's kind of uh it's a you, you should watch discovery
1: yeah okay. yeah it's, right. uh, it's good but anyways uh you can find the show wherever you get your podcasts uh the computer resume podcast and it's on all the socials at computer resume i am at mr todd a davis on all the socials aka keith osterberg
0: <laughs> <laughs> i am at justin underscore bishop uh twitter instagram letterboxd uh you can also find us at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram, find us on Facebook. Again, we are on discord and all that stuff as well. Head to our website to find all of that. And until next week, may the wings of Liberty never lose a feather and be
1: excellent to each other. This year's Zen Tsuji middle school. Number four's class E was chosen among 43,000 ninth grade classes. This year's game said to be more blistering than the last. Oh, look there. There he is. The winner's Johnny surviving a fierce battle that raged two days, seven hours, and 43 minutes. The winner is Johnny. Look, he has the keys. The keys. Johnny definitely has the keys.